Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We're In Social Work. Hello, I'm Charles Sims, one of your hosts of In Social Work. I'd like to take a moment to address you, our listeners. Thanks for downloading more than 400,000 of our podcasts. We'd like to know what you think of them. Please take a couple of minutes to tell us what you like or don't like about the podcast. If you're an educator and you're using our podcast in your courses, how are you using them in your teaching? If you're a professional practitioner, how have the podcast influenced your work? We would also like to know what you'd like to see us do next. Please go to our website at www.insocialwork.org and click the Contact Us tab. We look forward to hearing from you. Again, thanks for listening. There is little doubt that social work can be stressful. The needs of those that social workers work with time and documentation pressures, professional and societal expectations, and the use of self in the work all can conspire to create significant demand on the professional social worker. Guarding against burnout is something that social workers hear about from the early days of their training and practice. Understanding that burnout can have serious implications for the delivery of services as well as lead to turnover Agencies also must be concerned about the stress experienced by its workforce. To address this very real concern, there has been increasing discussion on the role of self-care in social work practice. In broad terms, self-care may be defined as a set of activities and practices that a person engages in regularly to reduce their stress and maintain and enhance their well-being. To understand the practical aspects of self-care, today's guest discusses research conducted by herself and her colleagues. Corey Bloomquist is a PhD student, visiting lecturer, and a research assistant at the Indiana University School of Social Work. Ms. Bloomquist received her BSW and MSW from Indiana University and has practiced in gerontology, disability services, mental health, and child welfare. In this episode, Ms. Bloomquist discusses her research related to social worker self-care practices and perceptions and professional well-being. She describes from that research social workers reported self-care practices across five domains as well as their perceptions of that self-care. Additionally, she discusses relationships between social worker self-care practices and perceptions and indicators of professional well-being. That include compassion satisfaction, secondary traumatic stress, burnout, and the intention to leave one's position. Ms. Bloomquist closes the interview by discussing implications for social work education, practice, and research. Our guest was interviewed by Elaine Hammond, a part-time member of the faculty at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Hello, Corey. Let's start talking about the work that you've done in terms of 
looking at social work self-care and how that both supports and may interfere with practice, with longevity in the profession, with satisfaction in the profession. Let's start right at the beginning. How did you first get interested in doing this? Sure. Well, I am a doctoral student at the Indiana University School of Social Work, and this research project regarding social worker self-care actually started as a class assignment for the doctoral quantitative research course that I took during my coursework for my Ph.D., and we were asked by our professor, Dr. Haywon Kim, to consider a topic of interest and collaborate with peers with similar interests, conceptualize a research project, and then carry it out all the way from conceptualization through data collection and report writing. So, as I said, we were asked to pick a topic of interest and collaborate with peers to develop that group research project. And being aware of those dynamics of group research, I decided to form a group with two fellow doctoral students, Leela Wood and Kristen Trainer, because we knew that we could work in a way that would be synergistic and collaborative, and we felt that that was really an essential step to completing a successful group research project. So that was great, and it was a great way to start, but we all had very different individual primary areas of interest in terms of research. So mine is child welfare, Leela's is domestic violence, and Kristen's is criminal justice. But we were able to come to some common ground with respect to our interest in the value of social worker self-care as we were all either current or former practitioners and had spent time in the field. And all of us were approaching the end of our doctoral coursework and we recognized the importance of healthy social workers. So thus our agreed upon research topic, social worker self-care emerged. And we really wanted to look at the relationships that existed between social worker self-care practice and social worker self-care perceptions, and then some various indicators of professional well-being, both positive indicators as well as negative indicators, because we believe that when thinking about well-being and professional well-being specifically, there are indicators on both sides of that fence. And absolutely, especially the perception is so interesting to me. So many social workers that I meet as students and early in the career really see the self-care piece as simply one additional requirement that they're trying to add to this pile of requirements. And it, it so often feels burdensome to them. Absolutely. And I'm sure we'll talk about it later in the interview, but self-care perceptions really emerged as one of the key predictors in terms of professional well-being, actually the most predictive indicators of professional well-being. So I'm excited to talk with you about what we found in terms of social workers' perceptions of self-care. Well, and before we move on, though, I would like to touch just a little bit on this aspect of doing this study as a class requirement. I think so often students find themselves doing projects like this as a class requirement, and they may miss the incredible opportunities for practice and for contribution to the profession that are possible in everyday study. 
Absolutely. And I think the word that you used, opportunity, was key. We saw this as an opportunity to not only learn ourselves, but contribute to the knowledge base in a way that would be positive and effective and that we could disseminate this knowledge to educators of social workers, current practitioners, and other researchers who might be interested in the topic of social worker self-care. Yeah, I really think that it was a rather brilliant part of the work that you did. So let's move right into how you recruited for these samples. Okay. So there were two inclusion criteria for our study. First, that the respondent must be currently practicing social work, and that linked to one of our indicators of professional well-being, specifically intent to turnover, which is a cognitive psychological process that one goes through when they are considering leaving their current job. So if we had respondents who weren't currently practicing, we wouldn't be able to measure that intent to turnover. So first inclusion criteria was that the respondent needed to be currently practicing social work, and second, that the respondent earned an MSW degree from a CSWE accredited MSW program. So we decided to tackle this with some vigor. We contacted all 217 accredited MSW programs across the country. We did this by email, and there were three of us, as I mentioned, in our research team. So we divided up the work and tackled that. So we asked each of those 217 programs about their potential interest in a research study that would look at social worker self-care and professional well-being and their subsequent willingness to assist in the recruitment process by sending out a web-based survey that we designed to their MSW alumni list serve. And if we did not hear back from the school upon our initial request, we sent a follow-up email to each of those schools. So take that number, 217, and double it, and those were their, our initial and follow-up contacts. So of those 217 schools that we contacted, 32 indicated that they had interest in our project and that they would be willing to help with recruitment. So that came to a response rate of about 15%. When we sent those recruitment emails, it included a link to the web-based survey that we designed through Qualtrics, and then the schools forwarded that email with the link to the survey to their MSW alumni listservs. And we actually had an opportunity to present some of our findings at APM the annual program meeting for CSWE this past fall and had others in the audience who said that they had also participated. So it was really great to, to see human beings behind these web-based responses. So that was an exciting part of our research in this process as well. So in all, our efforts resulted in a total of 971 respondents, and those respondents were from 42 states and the District of Columbia. And of those 971, 786 met the inclusion criteria. So we ended up with a nice hearty N of 786 MSW-level practicing social workers that wanted to share with us about their social worker self-care practice and perceptions and their overall professional well-being. So we had a great sample, great turnout for this project. I do find myself a little curious, as you say, 42 states in the District of Columbia. Were there any 
pockets of states where the states that you didn't find represented fairly evenly distributed? Do you have parts of the countries that you find yourself wondering what self-care practices like? You know, we had a pretty representative sample across the United States. We did see the Midwest was probably more responsive than some of the other states. And as I said earlier, I'm a student at the IU School of Social Work in Indiana, and we had a big response from Indiana. So I'm not sure if that in part is from people within the school and within the community being knowledgeable about our research efforts, and that could have biased their decision to participate slightly. But we had representation from the East Coast, from the North, from the South, and from the West Coast. So we were pretty happy with that. And we also asked a question about urban versus rural area of practice. And about 30% of our sample indicated that they practiced in a rural setting. And we were really happy about that, too. So we had uh, over 200 respondents that were able to share with us that practiced in a rural area. Well, and that's wonderful. Yeah. I had also shared that my practice is primarily in a rural environment, despite the fact that I'm associated with an urban university. And uh, I'm so happy that you were able to hear from those colleagues of mine practicing in rural settings. So we've got the recruitment. You've got a really nice sample going. What initial data were you collecting? Sure. We, as I said earlier, developed a web-based survey through Qualtrics that included multiple components. So in an effort to study social worker self-care practice, social worker self-care perceptions, and positive and negative indicators of professional well-being, we had a few different scales within our instrument. We wanted to look at compassion satisfaction, secondary traumatic stress, burnout, and intention to turnover as those indicators of professional well-being. We know that others exist, but there are established scales out there that have been used in tons of studies that are reliable and valid, so we wanted to start this endeavor with regard to social workers' self-care and professional well-being using some established measures. So our instrument included demographic and background questions, two established instruments, one, the ProQual 5, developed by STAM, and the other, the intent to turnover scale, developed by Callaway, Gottlieb, and Barham. And then two self-developed measures, which were based upon available literature on social worker self-care and perceptions. One that explored self-care practices across five domains, and then the other, the self-care perception scale, included 11 questions related to one's value of self-care, perceived effectiveness, and perceived barriers, as well as one's employer's perceptions of self-care and one's MSW program's perceptions and value of self-care. Again, things that really interest me. Anything else on the data before we go right into what did you find? Maybe just a little bit on our sample. We found that our sample was pretty representative in terms of NASW, Social work demographics, our sample was predominantly female, Caucasian, and not Hispanic or Latino. And the average age of our participants was 41. And we weren't really surprised by that because we were looking at folks with an MSW. 
And of those who responded, they had about nine and a half years of practice experience. So that sort of matches up when we think of traditional students entering and graduating from an MSW program. And on average, respondents had been in their current position for about five years. So that is a little bit more about our sample. Uh, additionally, the majority of respondents were licensed, and they served in full-time clinical positions in which they spent over half of their week in direct contact with clients, which we felt was an important question to ask when we're thinking about self-care and thinking about indicators of professional well-being, such as burnout and intent to turnover and secondary traumatic stress. We really wanted to better understand that piece of direct contact with clients and how that might play into one's professional well-being. Absolutely. And certainly, perhaps, although we'll take a little time at the end to talk about what next steps might be either for you or someone in your working group, or perhaps for one of our listeners who is interested in taking this research to another step. Yes, it's so fascinating to see if there are differences in perceptions around self-care and around how self-care skills are used in different areas of the work. Yes. So, what did you learn? We learned so much, and I'll speak statistically first and then sort of break it down from there. So we used multiple regression to predict scores on each of those four indicators of professional well-being, compassion, satisfaction, intent to turnover, burnout, and secondary traumatic stress. And we used nine predictor variables. Two of those were self-care practice and self-care perception, and then we had some background demographic variables as well. So overall, that regression model with all of our predictor variables was statistically significant for each of those four indicators of professional well-being. So our analyses revealed some pretty interesting findings. We found that there were five significant predictors for less burnout or lower levels of burnout among respondents. And those included self-care perceptions and one's engagement in professional self-care activities, emotional self-care activities, and spiritual self-care activities, as well as more years of post-MSW experience. When we looked at the indicator of secondary traumatic stress, we found two significant predictors, and those were self-care perceptions and more years of post-MSW experience. And we weren't really surprised that we didn't have any significance in terms of particular domains of self-care practice that were predictive because the literature tells us that secondary traumatic stress is thought to have more of an immediate onset when compared to some of the other well-being indicators such as burnout that accumulates over time. So it seems reasonable to think that ongoing self-care practice may be somewhat less effective in mediating the onset of secondary traumatic stress. When we looked at intent to turnover, which again is that psychological process, that cognitive process that a person goes through prior to leaving their job, we found four significant predictors. Those were self-care perceptions and professional self-care engagement, more years of post-MSW experience, and greater annual income. So we saw some social and economic factors come into play with intent to turnover, more so than 
specific self-care practice domains. So that wasn't really surprising either, and, and that's an area of interest that some audience members, when we've talked about our research in the past, were interested in and said, we would like to know more about this, this phenomenon of intent to turnover and what we can do and if there are socioeconomic factors involved in that process. And our initial findings say, yes, that is something to consider. Finally, we looked at compassion satisfaction. And we think of compassion satisfaction as that pleasure that is derived from helping others and serving others. And we feel that that is a key component of professional well-being, especially among social workers in helping roles. So we found three significant predictors of one's greater compassion satisfaction. Again, self-care perceptions, as well as two domains of social worker self-care practice, that being engagement in emotional self-care activities and engagement in professional self-care engagement. So interesting findings there. And we found that the more positive perceptions that respondents had about self-care, and the more they spent time engaging in emotional self-care practice and professional self-care practice, the more they reported that higher level of optimism that they derived from their work of helping others. And we felt that was really important because compassion satisfaction has been linked to worker longevity, which is important for continuity when it comes to agencies and their sustainability, as well as client outcomes. When workers stay with their agencies and with their clients, there's research to suggest that clients have a better and more positive quality experience with that relationship with the helping professional. So from what we've learned about those buffering effects of post-MSW years of experience, in terms of professional well-being, supporting compassion satisfaction, especially and potentially through self-care, could really have positive implications for social workers themselves in maintaining their positions, agencies in maintaining their workforce that is happy and derives pleasure from their work, and then ultimately benefiting clients. So we felt that our findings related to compassion satisfaction were really important. As I was listening to you speak about compassion satisfaction and how that is more likely to keep social workers in their positions for a longer period of time, then I began to find myself going back to the intent to turn over, uh, thinking that, again, if someone is in their position for a longer period of time, they're more likely to be available for raises, for some of that increase in income that protects against intent to turn over. So it really seems to me as though agencies don't always have a lot of, they don't always have a lot of say, a lot of persuasion in terms of self-care for their employees, but income to a point, even in our economy, is something that they can control if and use that perhaps as an incentive to take better care of oneself. Agreed. Another thing that is really jumping out at me, and because of my own emphasis in practice, is that spiritual self-care did not pop way to the top in any of your domains. 
That is correct. Actually, among the five self-care domains, it ranked lowest in frequency of engagement. I find that fascinating, partially because research would tell us that encouraging clients to consider what brings them meaning in life can be so important in helping them to fund courage that it takes to make the changes and meet the challenges that they are asking us to help them make. And yet it does not come to the top of the research for practitioners. Absolutely. And as a social work educator teaching social work practice, we talk about the role of spirituality and, as you said, as sometimes a motivating factor, a potential area that does give meaning to existence, gives meaning to behavior. And, yes, we were quite surprised as well to find it at the lowest end of our scale in terms of frequency of practice. It also pops to the top, I think, of some of the work that's come out of Stanford, really comes to the top in terms of resilience spirituality, as well as very specifically spirituality through a religious lens, can be so important in resilience, and yet it just doesn't show up. Did you or your team have any thoughts about that? Well, one thought we have relates to our methodology and the types of analyses that we did. So we, in future research, either as a team or individually or others out there who might be interested in exploring this, we're interested in potentially doing some factor analysis of our scales in terms of those domains of self-care practice to kind of see which factors hang together because it's possible that our respondents don't conceptualize spirituality based upon the choices they were given in that domain. So that's something that we are interested in exploring. I find myself wondering if it is somehow rolled into the emotional engagement. And potentially psychological as well. Both of those seem that they would have components, that spirituality and emotional self-care and psychological self-care, that there is some interrelatedness definitely among those domains. It's fascinating. You've talked about some of these major findings. As you and your team have thought about this, and I understand, again, you come from very different perspectives. It sounds as though you come from different emphases in your major doctoral work as well. But what are some of the implications that you find here? Sure. And I think to speak to the implications, I want to touch on a little bit more about the self-care perceptions issue. So as I said earlier, some of the questions that we ask in terms of the respondents' perceptions of self-care related to their own value of self-care, their MSW program's value of self-care, as well as their MSW program's teaching of self-care, how to engage in self-care practice effectively, as well as their employer's value of self-care, and then subsequently their employer's teaching of how to engage in self-care practice effectively, and then some of the barriers that exist and perceived ease of engagement in self-care practice. So what we found is that respondents overwhelmingly value self-care. 94% of respondents said, yes, I agree or strongly agree that self-care practice is valued personally on a personal level. And 
quite a few respondents, about 64%, said my MSW program also values self-care, but far less believed that their program effectively taught them how to engage in self-care practice. And similarly, about half of respondents said that their employer valued self-care, but less than a fourth of respondents said that their employers taught them how to effectively engage in self-care practice. So we see that as a gap, especially when considering that professional self-care engagement is predictive of less burnout and more compassion satisfaction and less intent to turnover. So teaching folks in the workplace how to engage in self-care practice seems that it could be beneficial for the workers, the agency, and again, ultimately the clients. And, and additionally, it's great. As you know, one of the core values of social work practice is competence. And we often hear that in order to be able to take care of others, you have to take care of yourself. So that value does come into play when we think about social worker self-care and taking that from the academic world out into practice. Research also tells us that when students begin a consistent self-care regimen as students, they're more likely to take that with them out into the field and continue to practice self-care when they're practicing with clients. So there seems to be a gap there, but I also think that points to another core value of social work practice, which is the dignity and worth of the person. And while we recognize the utmost importance of putting clients' needs ahead of our own in practice, to really embody that value of dignity and worth of a person we need to really embody that ourselves as human beings and have that as an expectation for ourselves as well as our clients because we as social workers are also worthy of dignity and self-worth and value and those things can be accomplished, I believe, through establishing and valuing and embodying self-care practice as part of your daily life as well as your professional life. Well, and you're preaching to the choir here (laughs) to a point in our specific discussion, as I had shared with you previously. It is a major focus of my own teaching, no matter what it is I'm teaching. And I do some very specific teaching and training around self-care for professionals, especially those who work in trauma-informed environments. But helping practitioners and students to make what seems to be a cognitive leap from the value and dignity and worth of the client, the self-determination of the client, to having themselves participate in that same group of humanity is difficult. Well, what about some of the future research issues? Are there questions then that are lingering for you? You've talked a little bit about additional factor analysis, but things that you personally are beginning to feel passionate about following up with in this research? Yes. The factor analysis is something just sort of structurally and for sound research we think would be positive and could really carry this type of research with regard to social worker self-care practice and perceptions forward and really help to make it even stronger and even more valuable to contributing to the knowledge base. So that's something that we're interested in. Something that you pointed at earlier was exploring 
the potential similarities or differences among social workers in varied areas of practice. So when we ask about demographic and background information, we also asked respondents to indicate their area of practice. And we had a wide range. We had about 18 different areas of practice, ranging from child welfare to mental health to health care. And it would be exciting, I feel, to really explore the ways that folks in different areas of practice perceive and then also engage in self-care practice. So that's an area that we're excited to look into further as well. And also, this was a, a quantitative research project, but I am a qualitative researcher at heart. So there are definitely qualitative questions that emerge from this research. And I think that quantitative and qualitative research should and can complement each other. So I think it would be exciting to really do some qualitative work with respect to those barriers to self-care practice. And you had mentioned earlier that students sometimes reveal that self-care practice can be just one more thing. It can be something else on their plate to do. And so really digging into that. And I think that connects well with another one of our findings. When we ask respondents to tell us what is the greatest barrier, what prevents you from engaging in self-care practice, and we gave them a list of potential responses, they said that their professional responsibilities prevented them most often from engaging in self-care practice. And that's concerning because we know that professional self-care is an important protective factor when it comes to indicators such as burnout and intent to turnover. And that there is a gap between the employer's value of self-care and their ability to teach their employees and their workers how to effectively engage. So Again, that qualitative piece of really exploring that perceived barrier, those perceived barriers of engagement in self-care seems exciting to me. It does. I think it would add a lot of richness to your data. I remember as we were preparing for this that one of those areas that I began to think of as an interesting qualitative area was you had mentioned that intent to turn over practitioners who engage in therapeutic supports for themselves, counseling, psychotherapy, have a, a slightly higher intent to turn over. And I found that a fascinating little nugget. I think that you might be referring to one of our surprise findings regarding psychological self-care. Let me speak to that a little bit. So we found one particularly perplexing finding, and that was that respondents who engaged in psychological self-care actually had higher levels of those negative indicators of professional well-being. So psychological self-care engagement actually was a significant predictor of more burnout, more secondary traumatic stress, and a greater intent to turn over from one's professional role. And that surprised us to a certain extent, and we thought about it quite a bit. And our initial thoughts regarding that finding were that perhaps folks who are engaging in some of those psychological self-care activities, such as practicing being mindful, participating in their own therapy, taking time for reflection, setting goals for themselves, 
are in fact perhaps more aware or more in tune with those phenomena related to work related stressors and including burnout and secondary traumatic stress and, and intent to turnover and we definitely would like to explore that finding greater and I think that we could do that through qualitative research in addition to some possible quantitative work as well. That one, it really fascinates me. <laughs> it really, partially because I teach so much from a mindfulness perspective, and yet if mindfulness actually does increase intent to turn over, eventually agencies will want me to speak to their employees. <laughs> that won't work out very well. We talked a little bit about how spirituality did not pop at all. I, I imagine that was one of them. This was one. Were there other surprises in there? You know, I could speak to the aspect of spirituality with particular attention to our rural participants. We found that in the general sense, rural practitioners' engagement in self-care activities were no greater or no less than those in urban settings. However, exploring literature related to the role of spirituality, especially in rural communities, led us to a hypothesis that rural practitioners would engage in spiritual self-care activities more than their urban counterparts. But that, in fact, was not the case. Spirituality, again, ranked lowest among those five domains. And when I think of you talking about how you had a slightly larger concentration from the center of the country, which we know from the research to have a slightly higher concentration of folks who engage in spiritual and explicitly religious activities on a regular basis, it is surprising. It is. And we did present some of our research regarding social worker self-care and professional well-being at the annual Rural Social Work Conference. And we asked our audience members to give us ideas about that. And there were quite a few folks who were rural practitioners themselves that said, when it comes to participating in spiritual activities, such as attending spiritual services, there is a great potential for dual relationships to exist, and they spoke to that, that oftentimes they will not participate in social, collective, gathering-type spiritual activities to avoid some of those dual relationships that often do occur in more rural settings. Absolutely. That's a very good point. That's certainly another area that where some quantitative but absolutely a qualitative approach would really add some richness to that finding. Where, how can our listeners learn more about this? Are you and your team looking at publication? We are currently looking at publications. We're in the process of finalizing a manuscript that we hope to submit for review and eventual publication regarding the broad study, which is what I spoke primarily today about social workers' health care and professional well-being as a whole, and also interested in, in possibly developing a manuscript related to the rural work and exploring those aspects that I've indicated to a lesser degree, but, but still that are out there and that are interesting. And uh, we hope to do future research. We have a big data set and lots of different areas to explore. So there is future work to come from this study and sort of the offshoots that piqued our interest. 
that is wonderful. Finally, what are there one or two things that you really hope today's listeners will take away? I really hope that today's listeners will take away that social workers do value self-care. They believe that it's important, but that there is a gap in perceived value and teaching current and future social workers how to engage in self-care that's effective for them. And it's going to be a personal journey, but more attention needs to be paid, and I think there's the potential for more attention to be paid in the classroom as well as in the field to supporting one another as a profession. And even though that journey of self-care and sustaining that in a way that creates a healthy individual, by recognizing this need, we as social work researchers, educators, supervisors, practitioners can work collectively to recognize the dignity and worthiness of each individual social worker. And that, I believe, will benefit our profession and the people that we serve in the end. Thank you. That was very eloquently phrased. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate your time. We appreciate your passion. Please, as well, extend our thanks to the other members of your team. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. You have been listening to Corey Bloomquist discussing self-care practices in social work. This is your host, Charles Sims, inviting you to join us again at In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu.